And while you are, we're transitioning, can you find Isaiah chapter 9? We're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 again. And uh, we have a lot of material to cover today, so I'm not going to mess around with doing any kind of introduction. We're just going to read the text, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the stuff that we're going to cover, because the two things we're looking at today with the title Everlasting Father, there's a lot that goes into those. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand as we read God's word to honor him, looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text as we have been studying the titles that will that Isaiah prophesies uh, by the Holy Spirit speaking through him, that titles that will be given to Jesus as the Messiah to come. And we know that names have meanings and those meanings mean are are important to you and they're not given lightly and so when we get something specifically from you a specific title or a specific name um, it's worth studying it's worth looking into and so i pray that today you would open our hearts and our minds to understand um, a little bit more I i don't know that we will ever fully understand in its depth what everlasting father can uh, can mean and uh, and um, to grasp all of what that is but I pray that we would have a better understanding as we leave here today and after studying your word and drawing near to you that we would uh, walk out of here with a, a more intimate walk with you um, Jesus and we pray this in your name amen all right go and have a seat first point in your notes is the biblical understanding of everlasting. The biblical understanding of everlasting. It's important when we look at words that we see in scripture that we allow the Bible to define them and not to define them from our 21st century American understanding of what those words mean. Because the Bible written at a different time in a different culture has sometimes a different understanding of the words. And so when we, if we apply our understanding from this culture at this time, we sometimes can misunderstand what the Bible is saying. So we're going to look at a biblical understanding of the word everlasting. The word is aviad, and it means everlasting father or father of eternity. So we translate it everlasting father in Isaiah chapter 9 here. Um, the name That name appears only two times in all of the scriptures. So it's here in our text in Isaiah 9, 
and it's also found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So only two times this name is mentioned in the Bible. Now, we let the Bible define it, but I want to look at a 21st century definition of it that you would find in a dictionary, and we're going to talk about the difference between what you would find and what we see in Scripture. Merriam-Webster defines everlasting as lasting or enduring through all time. Uh, and you know how in a dictionary you'll have a definition, but there will sometimes be more than one definition. So a secondary definition in Merriam-Webster's um, dictionary is uh, simply the word eternity. But there's a problem with defining everlasting or defining eternity even as enduring through all time. Because whatever is being described as everlasting, that definition in Merriam-Webster's dictionary limits it to something within time. If it's enduring through all time, it's confined to, the thi to what we know of time. And so, consequently, it's also linked with space and matter, because time, space, and matter are correlative, meaning one can't exist without the other, other two. But God doesn't fit that definition, because he is the creator of all things, even time itself. He preceded time because time didn't exist until he created everything in our universe. Uh, so we have a couple of places in scripture that I just want to read real quickly. Um, you can write these references down if you want. Genesis 1.1, simply, and you know this well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which meant God was there prior to anything that is in what we understand to be the cosmos. God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word, So, and we, we know from John's writings that he's referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and then verse 3, through, through him all things were made, nothing Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so those two verses speak about God being in existence prior to creation, because God is the one who created it, and God created time within that creation. So defining everlasting as something that endures through all time does not fit, God doesn't fit into that. So to speak of him being everlasting, we also have to understand the concept of eternity. In the human, we, we have a difficult time defining eternity properly because our minds define things according to concepts that we understand, right? So the human mind grasps the concept of time. Like everything has a beginning and everything has an end. And so we can, we grasp that because that's reality for us. But if we let the Bible define the terms that it uses, it's not just lasting into the future forever with no end. The Bible refers to two things that it calls eternal or everlasting. God is one of them, and the other one is the Word of God. We're told in Scripture that all things may pass away, but the Word of God will never pass away, right? So... 
Those two things are defined in, in Scripture as eternal. God and his word. Now, we know that we will pass from this life and there will be an eternal existence for us beyond here. But we are not referred to as eternal because we had a beginning. And eternity is much larger than just having a beginning and then never ending. Eternal or everlasting is only applied to God because it means not only something that has no end, but also that it had no beginning. So if we look at places like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, um, I don't think I put it in the slides. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, you could turn there if you want. Um, this is the author of Hebrews talking about how God has, uh, his son has now come, and that's how he is re he's speaking to people. And in verses 1 and 2 it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Now, that word universe, um, that, I know the NIV translates it that way. There may be other versions that translate it that way, but that is not a good translation because the word that is translated universe means ages. And so that should read, and through whom also he made the ages. So he preceded the ages because he existed before anything was created and he existed into eternity past. He had no beginning. Another reason that Merriam-Webster has this completely wrong is that eternity existing into the past is not a biblical concept alone. It's a scientific concept as well. For a long time, and I know we have some science-minded people in here, for a long time, scientists argued that the universe was eternal. And when they said that, what they meant was that the universe had no beginning. So it meant eternity past. Now, and that was one of their biggest arguments to deny, to try to deny creation and to deny the biblical account of creation because if the universe had no beginning, then there was no point at which it would have been created, which in turn allowed them to deny the existence of a God who created it. But in the 20th century, there were five major scientific discoveries that led to the undeniable conclusion that the universe actually did have a beginning, something that Jews and Christians have been proclaiming for all of human history. But even though that theory that the universe was eternal and had no beginning, even though that theory had been thoroughly discredited, the concept of eternity past is what the leading scientists of the day were talking about when they called the universe eternal. So this is not only a biblical concept. It's something that people who um, were, were studying some of the most complex things about the creation, they understood the concept of something not having a starting point. So here's the question then. What can we know of God in terms of his eternal existence? So as we're looking at these titles that are given to Jesus, that titles that will be applied to Jesus when he comes in the role of Messiah, 
and we're looking at what we see about those terms, what we, how they're described in scripture, how we see it play out in the, the person and being of God. What do we know of God in terms of his eternal existence? Well, we know that eternal, eternal means that he has no beginning. We just covered that from our text today, Isaiah 9. We have a, a very detailed account of how he created this world in Genesis 1 and 2, which again points to the fact that he preceded that. And we have a continued, we have, we have an account of his continued um, intimately in, um, interaction and, and his involvement in this world, even in the lives of human events, in the course of human history, and that's Genesis 3 through Revelation. So we have this detailed account in Scripture of his, his preceding it, his, his being in existence from eternity past, into the account of his creation, into the account of how involved he is in the lives of humans because there's need for a redeemer because we have been, we've fallen into sin. That detailed account allows us to see throughout God's eternal existence that he is sovereign over all creation. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We talked about the five areas that he's sovereign over um, that I ran through. He's sovereign over mankind, and we said specifically the hearts and the minds of mankind. He's sovereign over that. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over disease. He's sovereign over death, and he's sovereign over sin and evil. So he reigns over all of those things. We talked about all of that last week. Now, throughout his eternal existence, we also know he is constant. He does not change. Hebrews 13.8 says that. Malachi 3.6 says that. James 1.17 says that. talks about how God is the only constant in anything. And if you, you, don't have to, you don't have to live for very long with any kind of ability to think to be able to see how quickly the world changes, how quickly technology advances, how quickly science has revealing new, new things, how quickly people and cultures change, how quickly mindsets and concepts and ideologies change. But in the world of such change, and, and I, would call, I would call it unstable, it's, it changes so fast, it's really unstable. There's one thing that's constant that does not change, and that is God. And he hasn't changed ever. So we can look back, if we can grasp the concept of never have a, having a beginning all the way back then, God is no different today than he was then. Throughout his eternal existence, he is, a, he is the standard of righteousness. We see in Galatians 5, and 23, that's the list of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I didn't count those. I think I said nine, but there are nine of them. Um, that is, those things, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that are born out of the character of God. Those things can only come from God, and that is the standard of righteousness, the moral standard that we live by. And throughout his eternal existence, he is Father. And so we're going to move into our second point and look at the biblical understanding of Father because the coming Messiah will be called Everlasting Father. 
All right, so have you ever wondered why we call him Father? Um, I, I know we understand why Jesus called him Father, and we'll get, in that in, get into that in just a second, but have you ever wondered why, why Jesus instructed us to ad- address him as Father? Some people might say it's because he created us. Um, you know, people say all the time, we're all God's children. You know, God created every one of us. We're all God's children. Um, I, I hear people say that a lot. Um, he does, he did create us all, and he does love us all. And th- so those things are true. But the fact that he created us or the fact that he loves us doesn't necessarily make us his child. Because I think the Bible actually says something different. There are only two places in the Old Testament. A lot of what we get, a lot of, let me back up. A lot of what we get in our understanding of addressing him as father comes from the New Testament. So we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Let's look at the Old Testament real fast. There are only two places in the Old Testament where God is called the father of Israel. And they're both in Isaiah Isaiah 63, 16. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, and it's all caps, so it's his personal covenant name, Yahweh, you, Yahweh, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. And then Isaiah 64, 8 and 9. Yet you... Yahweh are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Yahweh. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. So those are the only two places in the Old Testament where God is specifically called father. Now, There are places in the Old Testament, other passages, where God's fatherly relationship to Israel is is understood, and you can see it. But these are the only two verses that actually call him father in terms of his relationship to Israel. And that is why, so, so it wasn't common. That's why it was so revolutionary for Jesus when he came on the scene in the New Testament to speak about God being his father and then he taught his disciples to pray the same thing when he gave us the model prayer and he said pray like this he said our father who art in heaven so he instructed us to address him as father God only refers to it twice in the entire history of Israel recorded in the Old Testament. It wasn't something that was stated often. It wasn't stated flippantly. And I said, I I understand why Jesus called him Father, because he was the second person in the Trinity. God is three three persons in one. And there is this understood and willing submission to a hierarchy. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus the Son. Jesus submits willingly to the Father. 
while Jesus was on the earth, accomplishing his mission to redeem us and to save us, he referred to God as his Father, and he speaks of himself being the Son who only does what the Father wills. So we see in Jesus something that's easy to understand why he would refer to him as Father. Um, but that's Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. Why would he then tell us, though, to call God Father? And I, we need to look at the context of those two passages in Isaiah 60, 1 and 63 and 1 and 64 that we read. Um, let me read them again real fast so that we can refresh our memory going into this. Uh, Isaiah 63, 16. But you are our father, through a though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. And then Isaiah 64. Oh, I did have them up there. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Let's look at the context of that to understand better why we call him father, why Jesus instructed us to. The context of those two passages focuses on God's forgiving and redeeming. Forgiving and redeeming his people. Isaiah 63 states, You, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, is, is your name. Isaiah 64, You, Lord, are our Father, and then it says, Do not remember our sins forever. So you're talking about redeeming in verse six, in Isaiah 63. You're talking about forgiving of sins in Isaiah 64. The fact is God does not call all people. There's nowhere in the Bible where God refers to all people on the face of the earth that he created. He does not refer to all people as his children. He does not refer to himself as the father of all people. It is only in the context of Israel, his relationship to Israel, whom he has redeemed. So the precedent is set in Isaiah that God becomes the, our father through the covenant relationship of his redemptive work. That redeeming work came in its completed form through the sacrifice of God's only begotten son, Jesus, and through Christ's redeeming work on the cross on our behalf, we are then adopted as sons and we share in his sonship. We see this also laid out in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Um, Paul writes the church in Rome, and he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now let me stop there. We're going to read on, but let me stop there and point out that Paul states we are God's children if we are led by the Spirit of God. So for those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, my question is, how did they receive that indwelling? And we receive the indwelling of the Spirit when we surrender our life to Christ. And so it's by redemption and the forgiveness of sins in that context that we received the indwelling of the Spirit. It's not simply because we're created by God. 
And then it's the work of the Spirit in us that allows us to call God our Father, according to Paul here. All right, go on. Um, so that was Romans 8, 14. Pick up in 15. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Again, something that's only possible because through Christ, God has redeemed us. Uh, go on, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Again, the context of Paul's statements here the context is those who have been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So God is very much a father to us who have entered into covenant with him through his son. And now we too are allowed to call him father. And just a side note here. You'll notice that the work of redemption and our adoption as children, where Paul calls us co-heirs with Christ, that's the work of all three persons of the Trinity. They're all involved in this. The Father redeems through the sacrifice of the Son and adopts us as children through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the, of the Godhead are involved in our redemption and adoption as children so that we can call God Father. All right, so what's that mean for us today, though? So we're going to look at five things. You have five blanks in your notes with the scripture reference so that you'll be able to go back and look at that if you need to later. Five things. Like any good father, our heavenly father, number one, teaches us. In John 14, 26, he says, But the Advocate, so that's the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples before his death and resurrection and then his ascension back up to heaven. He says, after all that, after I return to heaven, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit in my name, and, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. And so... The promise is that once Jesus goes back to heaven, we will receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who guides and teaches us and reminds us of the things we've learned, teaches us things that we still need to learn as we dig deeper into relationship with the Lord. So he teaches us. Number two, like any good father, our Heavenly Father encourages us, specifically through the church. I, so I, I want to point this out. Like Encouragement comes, we get encouragement from God's Word, but God has given us the gift of the church so that we don't have to go through this world and the struggles of this world without any kind of support system. The church is there to encourage you. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. When you're going through trials, you're suffering, you're going through maybe tension with another person or other people 
A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for that time. And he's talking about the fellowship and communion we have with God's people. Number three, like any good father, our Heavenly Father rebukes us. Anybody like re being rebuked? I don't either. But it's a necessary thing. It's a good thing for us to be rebuked. When, we are, when we're walking down a path that's going to lead to destruction, we need someone to step in and say, I love you enough to prevent you from doing this. You need to correct your thinking, or you need to correct your behavior, or you need to, you need to be delivered from this stronghold that has a grip on your life. And so our Heavenly Father rebukes us. And this, I didn't put it up there, but this comes through the church as well, through good, intimate relationships we have with other believers. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. One of the hardest things for me to get my children to understand is that when they're punished or we rebuke something in their life, the hardest thing is to get them to understand that that is for their good. But anybody who is a parent knows that that is necessary at times. And so scripture is real clear. God disciplines and rebukes those that he loves. I've, I've had to tell my kids before who are, they're convinced that because I'm punishing them, I don't love them. And I've had to say, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't care what kind of person you became. You know, so that's a hard concept for them to understand. God is the same way. If God didn't love us, he would just let us ruin our life and walk down the path that leads to destruction. But he loves us enough to rebuke us and to discipline us. And then this, this is in Proverbs 3. The author of Hebrews um, quotes this, but adds to it one, one line after it. He says, so he says, uh, as a father, he disciplines those he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So our Father in Heaven rebukes us at times because he's a good father. Uh, number four, like any good father, our Heavenly Father loves unconditionally. Loves unconditionally. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 speaks of God treasuring us. You are the children of the Lord your God, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. God treasures us. Psalm 103.13 compares God to a compassionate father. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And the last thing, like any good father, our heavenly father gives hope. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we... We know that this existence is not the end. This is not all there is. We can look forward to the time when we will pass from this life into an eternal existence. And the promise is 
God has given us a gift in Jesus, and the gift is eternal life. And so there's hope. All right, let me close by saying this. Because God is, and according to our text that we're looking at, Isaiah 6, or Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, uh, we know that Isaiah's pro proclaiming the Messiah will also be called this. Because God is everlasting Father, we on this earth are given an everlasting hope. And we will share it with so many who have gone before us and so many who will come after us. The author of Hebrews, we're familiar, we're, we're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It's the chapter where the author goes through a list of all the faithful, all the people who are faithful, and, and gives some detail about what went on in their life that they did that was faithful. And as he's discover, discussing the faithful, he says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so we've, we're given this everlasting hope, this hope that will never come to an end, this hope that awaits us if we've surrendered ourselves to Christ. And Jesus told his disciples in John 14, he said this, Do not let your hearts be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That is the purpose of him coming as a baby. And we celebrate that at Christmas because he came in order, he was born in order to die for us so that he could go and prepare a place for us and come back when everything is the fullness of time comes, everything has been accomplished, he can come back and take us so that we can be where he is. And that's a promise that's given only to those who can truly call him everlasting Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that promise that this world is not all that there is. And when it comes to an end or our life comes to an end, it is not something to fear if we know your son Jesus and we've surrendered our will over to him. If we are pursuing intimacy with you on a daily basis, we have nothing to fear because once we, once we pass from this life into our eternal existence, we will be with you forever. 
thankful that we have that hope and that nothing can take that away from us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.